Y'all ready for this? Dun, 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 dun. Did you have coffee this morning? I did. I always have coffee. My routine Like now, a liter of coffee? No, no, no. <sighs> wow, Cherise. <laughs> Are you tired? I'm not tired, actually. I slept well last night. Are you tired of speaking to me? No. About hard topics. No. It's funny you asked me about sleep because I don't know if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, it's placebo, but did I talk about this before? About the sleep ring I got? Yeah, so, we talked about it on the podcast. So I'll briefly talk about my insights after what's been probably like three weeks. When I first got the ring, I was sleeping actually pretty well, right? And it was interesting. I'm like, oh, is it because first and foremost, I'm sleeping alone because my wife was traveling, Nicole mm-hmm. was traveling. And apparently, I didn't know this, but I listened to a podcast that suggested that a lot of your sleep quality is associated by the temperature. Oh. So naturally, usually anyways, the temperature we have is not as cool as it is now. And also when you're sleeping in a bed with another person, it's warmer, right? Right. So having said that, I was sleeping better before. She came back and my sleep ended up being super shitty, (laughs) verifiably shitty. You know, there is, sorry, before you continue this story, there's also been scientific studies done on whether people sleep better with a partner. Oh, and what's the outcome? Mostly it's that you sleep better with another person. It depends how you sleep, I think. But the thing is, maybe the effect wears off the more you're, the more time you spend with that person. And then I also did some smaller tests where I either didn't have earbuds in and I didn't have a face mask on to block out the light. So I've now come to the conclusion I need to sleep on the outside close to the AC. Okay. I need to have a sleep mask on. I need to have earbuds in. And the rest actually, I can't really control it. Like what time I go to sleep, how much pre-bed screen time I have. Like, I mean, I just have stuff I need to do before I go to bed. I can't dedicate 90 minutes before bed to yeah, just no. I would like to, but I can't. So it whatever. It doesn't seem practical yeah. to me. So I'm, I am working on something a little bit more comprehensive in regards to like, I guess my, my insight into sleep and the whole creative process in a way. So anyway, you slept really well last night. Yeah, I did. After having, I mean, relative to the other nights. Yeah. I actually always sleep well. I'm, I'm spoiled. You just go to bed okay, late. Not, all, not always. Like I, 95% of the time, my quality of the sleep is good. But the thing is that I tend to sleep late. So how do you know you sleep well? Like you wake up refreshed basically. Yeah. And when I don't, it's because I didn't sleep enough, enough hours. So I guess I'm lucky. Like I'm, I'm more fortunate. Got it. What I wanted to talk about, which almost became one of the main topics, but then got sidelined because so many other interesting things happened. It's been a pretty crazy week. It's been an eventful week, I would say. So what I wanted to bring up in this intro section was the outline, which is this purportedly when it started in 2016, new wave revolutionary media company. It got a lot of funding and recently it fired six staffers, including all of its staff writers. So what this means is they're still editors. Which is not the first round of layoffs. Not the first round of layoffs even. Um, and the previous round was even more cringy, not good to watch happening because, um, the founder, Joshua Topolsky came out and said that they were underperforming 
And then there was backlash. And then he like apologized for saying that. So basically he laid these people off and then he also like defamed them publicly. So this most recent round, the thing that is, we weren't even really going to mention it more than this, but the thing that's unprecedented is that after this happened, a 120 freelancers that are part of a collective called Study Hall signed an open letter saying they wouldn't write for the outline anymore. And this is a relevant thing because it's not like hypothetical freelancers that have never written for the outline, but freelancers that actually do, like a portion of the collective have contributed in some way before to the outline. And then after Study Hall came out and said this, like a, a lot of other freelancers jumped on and said like, you know, we support this movement as well. Um, and the interesting thing is because it's reflective of this current age where companies like the outline are very reliant on freelancers. So freelance writers, I think the whole world is pretty much reliant on freelancers. (laughs) The whole gig economy is freelance. Uh, Um, so them saying that they are not in support of the outline's recent actions is in a way like employees saying that. They're not full-time employees, but they are people who work for the company. Mm-hmm. And people online were saying like, this is, this is like showing solidarity yeah. to what, your colleagues that were fired. What to you is the most impactful thing to emerge from what was said here? The bigger picture thing to me is this relationship between freelancers and full-time employees. And it's interesting for me particularly because I'm a little bit of both yeah. at this point. Like my position at Macon is like an ongoing thing, right? Yeah. Like you, I'm not hired here on a project basis and I do commission work from other people. Mm-hmm. So I have a responsibility to support my freelancers, you know, the contributing writers that work for us. And in theory, all of the contributing writers that might one day work for us. And then I'm also a freelancer. So I understand wanting to be supportive of other full-time employees because mm. their jobs are important to me having jobs yeah. and vice versa. Like, I think this makes that clear, that dynamic. So the one thing that immediately popped into my mind was this reaction is obviously on the content side. But what I was thinking was behind the scenes and some places I've mentioned it, that the underlying business of media is also something that is very uncertain. So Mm -hmm. the outline raised like $5 million or something like that. I believe I read a quote that said the the reason behind these layoffs was to achieve profitability. Yes. No, not even profitability. Like Topolsky said, the layoffs were to reach break even. Yeah, yeah, break even. So having said that, it brings into question a lot of things. First and foremost, two problems at hand. Like the outline's bigger problem is like they need to run a sustainable business, Mm -hmm. right? And by trying to do that, they've inherently screwed over a bunch of other people, right? But then the people that are taking a stand right now aren't inherently helping solve the underlying problem. So what does it mean if tomorrow the outline folds and no jobs for anybody? Obviously that's not good. The thing is that the, what these freelancers signing a petition does is yes, not very helpful to the outline right now, because that means the editors that are still there suddenly have a whole bunch of freelancers that say they aren't going to write for the outline and also does not get the fired employees their jobs back. 
I don't imagine the outline, like Topolsky is not going to suddenly rehire those people, the staff writers that were fired because yeah. of this petition. Yeah. I mean, there's but also what it does is it signals to other media companies. I mean, I don't, I don't think that suddenly Vice or whoever the all of the media companies relying on freelancers are suddenly scared, but it is what I think a good move to show, hey, not all media companies can just let go of their entire full-time staff. Well, one thing for sure is that something that has played out in the past has played out again, and that's VC-led media companies are in many ways unsustainable. It's just really hard. I think you'll have some... People that obviously blow up, like your BuzzFeeds, but I think in general, like it's very challenging. No one said that VC money guarantees anything, but I'm just saying that more often than not, like the actual outcome is mostly negative yeah. because people have mentioned, oh, now they're obviously the agenda has changed. Yeah. And I, I mean, I personally like the outline, but I, I also, do. I mean, why? I still like the writing that the outline publishes. I mean, the underlying issue here is really about creating a sustainable media company. And I don't know if accelerating the growth of a media company necessarily works in the grand scheme of things because media is about building brand, brand takes time. And then ultimately what it comes down to is how fast can you build that brand? And sometimes you can't rush it. I mean, marketing, I think marketing is the one thing that media companies generally need to do a better job of, I would say, us included. That to me is like the one thing that what I see is the the biggest challenge is like building meaningful brand and audience, not like, Hey, I got a million people onto this one page and they bounced and left after. Mm, I, I don't forecast a rosy future. The modern media company doesn't really sell content per se. It sells everything in and around content, but content is the top of the funnel. Yeah. So people come in through the content, which is free. Like obviously the only way that, well, I don't know what's behind the scenes, but the predominant way they make money is through advertisements, right? And, Most likely that's and, what it looks and like. Driven and display ads. Yeah. Which are, well, actually, no, they, they, they host their own ads. So that means that in general, they, they're a little bit more impervious to ad blocking. I mean, look at Macon. Macon is not run off of ads, it's supported by membership. And it's also behind the scenes run by creative agency and studio work. But I also think that in general, like when, Alex and I set up Macon. There was a very strong belief that there has to be the ability to be break even yeah. at a small scale before anything else happens. Because I think everything else is so risky right now. Yeah. I mean, I would like you to think that we lean towards that sort of philosophy. And for better or worse, I mean, maybe it doesn't mean a lot of resources, but it's kind of being scrappy. Oh, no. Yeah. I subscribe to it. I mean, if I... If I worked for the outline and I knew, like I saw in the news that we got all of this VC funding, but then my colleagues are getting laid off, I would be, I feel understandably upset about how things are being run. Anyway, that's all. I actually just wanted to point out the, I mainly was interested in that freelancer full-time employee dynamic. And I was more interested in finding a solution to media's big issue around financial sustainability. We also play different roles in this yeah. company. But yeah, like I, I think that in general, I, I was always going to look one step beyond that. I mean, I'm not, it's not that I don't care about that because I think that in general, anyone that you work with, you would like to be able to support them in some sort of meaningful way, whether it's enough money 
and or some other opportunity. And I, I, I recognize like, I don't want to use that as a cop out, but oh, I should say minimal financial reward and exposure. Then no one's, no one, no one has to take it. Right. I dream of a day where we can pay contributing writers and yeah. photographers more. Yeah, of course. And, but it's also like, uh, the one thing that's interesting is that by virtue of having a two pronged approach and, you know, this is something that, that we openly talk about, like on the editorial side, currently the likelihood of you getting paid a shitload of money is a lot less than if you get pulled into a studio or creative agency job. Yeah. So that is something that inherently we're thinking about as well. I mean, I'm not saying we talk about this so much, but obviously like I can hear myself saying the exact same thing I've said to you before. No one is in media or trying to be a journalist or a writer to earn lots of money. Correct. But maybe, maybe I think not, not, not necessarily myself, but I think some people on the ownership side are. Okay, sure. No one writing articles is imagining that this is the path to get rich. Correct. There is no illusion there. So all it is, is trying to do as much as we can from whatever position we're in to not keep sliding down to writing totally free content. What is interesting though, I feel that there is a lot of opportunity if you're a highly visible writer and or editor, like as in there's other opportunities that pop up. So that's sort of the unfortunate reality is that you're known for one thing, but you make your money another way. Is that good or bad? I don't know. Um, I, mean, I you, think it's you, just like fine. You, you can't pay your rent with Twitter followers and whatnot. Just no a way to find fulfillment and then also a way to pay the rent. Yeah. It's fine, I think. Yeah. Or that's the way things are. Should we get started? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So I'm going to kick things off here. My topic this week is now Twitter edits the New Yorker. So this is a pretty complex topic. It crisscrosses with several different players and there's a lot of different underlying factors at play here. So bear with me. So the Economist and the New Yorker were both in the midst of hosting respective events called the Open Future Festival with The Economist and the New Yorker Festival. And these conferences would bring together a wealth of influential people, for better or worse, with the ultimate goal of engaging in discourse and dialogue. Both festivals invited controversial political figure Steve Bannon, publisher of the alt-right publication Breitbart, and himself. I guess, how would you put him? I mean, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different hats he holds, and he's someone that, depending on which particular group interacts with him is known for different things but generally it's been known that he's played a big role in the dissemination of fake news and was pivotal in helping donald trump get elected but beyond this he's been at the heart of numerous inflammatory sexist racist homophobic and xenophobic comments so following the announcements both by the new yorker edited by david remnick and the economist edited by zany minton bedos both faced intense backlash over the inclusion of bannon in their festivals Twitter sounded off with festival panelists like director Judd Apatow and actor Jim Carrey 
who both threatened to pull out. On the flip side, there was some support for The New Yorker, including the one and only Malcolm Gladwell. And he, he sent out two tweets. One of them, huh? Call me old fashioned, but I would have thought that the point of a festival of ideas was to expose the audience to ideas. If you only invite your friends over, it's called a dinner party. And his second tweet was, Joe McCarthy was done in when he was confronted by someone with intelligence and guts before a live audience. Sometimes a platform is actually a gallows. For the New Yorker, their justification was that this was an opportunity to engage in deep and challenging conversation. In the end, there were two different outcomes. The New Yorker revoked Steve Bannon's invite while the Economist justified its position in keeping Bannon on the speaker list. Yeah, I just wanted to add, you said the New Yorker provided a justification at first for why they invited Bannon. And Ramnick said he had every intention of asking him difficult questions and engaging in a serious and even a combative conversation. The audience... Remnick said, would by its presence put a certain pressure on a conversation that an interview alone doesn't do. You can't jump on and off the record. And finally, Zany Minton Bedoz, I don't know if I'm saying that last name correctly, but editor-in-chief of The Economist retorted, replied to the backlash with, the future of open societies will not be secured by like-minded people speaking to each other in an echo chamber, but by subjecting ideas and individuals from all sides to rigorous questioning and debate. This will expose bigotry and prejudice, just as it will reaffirm and refresh liberalism. That is the premise The Economist was founded on. But one of the biggest takeaways, and arguably the focus of our talk, is the role community and social media plays in influencing the private sector, such as brands and publications. And as you know, Twitter can now control what personalities brands work with, what topics publications can talk about. I think it's also interesting to provide a little bit of context to the New Yorker Festival, So this is the 18th annual New Yorker Festival, and it's usually quite a big deal, but I do think the audience is mainly their readership. It's not that, it's not really this main public event. Like it's not Coachella, you know, like certain people are interested in buying tickets. I looked at the list of other one-on-one interviews this year. Did you look at that? It's actually quite interesting. So there's Chelsea Manning, Jerry Seinfeld, Ai Weiwei, Ava DuVernay, Glenn Close. There's, and then also there was one slightly controversial figure just scanning this list, which was Senator Al Franken, who lost his position because of stuff coming out about him groping a woman and saying some sexual harassment like language. I just think it's interesting how there's a whole bunch of other folks that nobody has paid any attention to or commented on the quality of the New Yorker Festival and just latched onto this Bannon thing. So you decided to write about this for the analysis yesterday. And I'm interested why you, why this piqued your interest enough. For me personally, the, the biggest interest is really around the idea of community governance and what happens when you start creating these pillars of society that are from the get go, from built from the ground up around community. Oh, I was saying, I don't even think of the New Yorker as this traditional community driven publication because it was a weekly print mag with no real online base for the longest time. And, and actually their online website, I feel only recently has become good. But to that point, they didn't choose a community. Community has sort of. Right. Their community just like coalesced, like appeared exactly. on Twitter. So what I'm saying is that whether they like it or not, 
community is driving some of their editorial direction. So this is in many ways kind of an interesting thing that didn't occur, you know, pre-social media. I find it really fascinating that there's a lot of incoming, I guess, structures within culture and society that are being built with community in mind from the get-go. So I think in many ways, a lot of times things were being done in a way where community was coming in after it gained a certain level of, I guess, traction on its own. But now it's like from the get-go, like you see publications that are... But we're like that. Of course. You ask us as well to be very community-minded. Correct. In the way we write or the way we do our marketing and activate or on people. Slack. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's very interesting. So you're now recognizing that right now there, there's almost like an erosion of single-minded individual or a small group of people that are running the show. Because even if you look at Nike, Nike had like... I was just thinking about Nike. Because they had like people come in and design shoes, right? No, but what I was thinking about is how, what is the value of having your community be a part of your editorial decisions? That is a good question. I think there's two ways of looking at it. One is the ability to tackle more topics than you as a smaller group could do on your own. Okay. Right. And also allow you to to look into blind spots and generally have a more empathetic and open-minded point of view on things. Okay. So what is the downfall though? What are some cons? The downfall I would say, well, my other one too, is that you're creating hopefully a product that has sufficient interest from a large enough community because community is strong, right? Interactions, all that stuff is strong, that it's something that's worth engaging with in a deeper and more profound level, which means like paying for it or whatever. So you use the community as a way of Finding out if what you do is of interest. Not necessarily, but I think that if you have a strong enough community, it's justifiable that they pay for it in some way. Okay. Right? Like whether it's buying tickets to an event, paying for a membership, et cetera. Got it. The other side, the downfall, I guess, is that exactly as we've seen here, to make difficult decisions sometimes will face the backlash of the people that are supporting you. You want to have your cake, but you can't really eat it too. No, I think the the bigger is that right? I think the bigger danger the that I see here, regardless of how we might feel personally about Bannon, that Remnick let all these other people influence his decision erodes his editorial power. Yeah, and, and his isn't, vision and everything. isn't his editorial power what makes the New Yorker something that the New Yorker community? loves in the first place. Yeah, I think that you make a good point there. In a way, by imposing this check yeah. on Remnick, you are actually eroding the thing that you say you like. Correct. But I think that what makes this a very challenging topic is the polarity of it. Yeah. So this is not an easy decision to make. So it's so interesting as well because Remnick so he writes this like two page letter when he decides to uninvite Bannon about his decision. And he still says that he stands by his decision, like his desire to interview Bannon. He says that it would not have been an unfiltered platform for the ideas of white nationalism, racism, anti-Semitism and liberalism. And he's, 
And he says to interview Bannon is not to endorse him. I agree. Right. But, but then he goes on and says, his main reason for disinviting Bannon is he says, I don't want well-meaning readers and staff members to think that I've ignored their concerns. So he's not even saying ideologically, I agree with these dissenters. He hasn't changed his mind ideologically. He is doing this because he wants to please these people, mm-hmm. essentially. Like he wants, he wants to, to be agreeable. He wants to respond to their concerns the way they want him yeah. to respond. I think that the biggest challenge here is that the stuff Bannon has said has directly, in a very black and white manner, offended people that goes beyond opinion. Well, how do I put this? I don't think that's the right way of saying it either. Like all the all the stuff around racism, homophobia, xenophobia, etc. I can see how it would be repulsive to another guest to be sharing the stage with this person that you totally disagree with. I can understand that. Even if the conversation was one that revealed Bannon's ideas as being flawed and full of holes, it would still feel repugnant. Yeah. As if you and this other person who you totally disagree with were given the same weight and attention. Because what I'm ultimately thinking about is... And this kind of ties in with the previous part, which is when we're talking about the outline is like, who's going to support your media company? And in general, like he's kind of bowed to three people, arguably the advertisers, right? Yeah. Because the New Yorker has to make money. The festival has to make money. The attendees, AKA the readers Mm -hmm. and his own staff, Yeah, which is kind of like the outline in some way. You know what I mean? Like, all the things involved, whether it's a business function, it's, yeah. I mean, despite being very different in the content they produce, they have the, the way they're funded and... To worry about. The, yes, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and as well as us. Yeah. So I think... We in, have the same three things to consider. Yeah. Okay, well, we don't really have advertisers, but you could say there are yeah. still outside entities that might give us money in so, certain ways. So what's interesting, I think that as this community governance thing boils up and becomes more established, you will find interesting things to come to the forefront. So let me ask you this. Okay. If let's say the 2020 New Yorker Festival was choosing its list of people and there was a Steve Bannon-like character and it was proposed and the overall community voted 51% in favor of having him attend. What does that mean? And do you think that diminishes the polarization of it because it's a community of event, community event in that they all voted on it and, you know, this was seen as such. And it's not one person. It's not David Remnick who's the villain. It's almost like faceless people. Because that to me is like... That is unappealing to me. Really? Yeah. I think that's kind of interesting. I'm not interested in... I don't know. I'd rather... I personally would rather attend a conference with a strong vision and that was editorially crafted than one that was crowdsourced by anyone that could vote. So why do you think the editorial voice is more important than the community voice? I just think that the community voice is necessarily a dilution. 
because it's many people. I, I think that I'm not saying that everything should be decided by one person, but the, in this context of conferences and media, I'm more interested in one strong brand opinion or, or a brand direction. And not, this actually goes into my topic about Nike as well. Like, I think it's much more, I would more likely to rally behind any entity that I saw had very decisive set of values. And yeah. Whatnot. Set of values, set of values and, um, creativity. And again, this is within a certain context, like vote, voting is important for other things. But I think when you put things to a very large group of anyone, right, then it becomes, well, where, where does the creativity? This is just a mass decision. I mean, I, the way I, I looked at it, and I think that it's not as, as simple as this or that, it's not as black or white, but there are parameters you can bake in and, and integrate so that ultimately when you, when you, enter these conversations, you kind of have like, it's almost as though it's like this. It's like 50% of the decision will be made by this party. Maybe the, it's the the internal team and then provide some sort of community opportunity rather than just wholesale, give them all power. Maybe that's what it comes down to. Maybe. Or maybe it's like, maybe the fact of the matter is they don't even care about who attends per se. Well, no, that's not true because they've, they've shown or some people have shown whether they're actual New York or the economist readers, they've shown a disdain for the choice of guests. But my, my question to you is seeing two different outcomes, one kicking Bannon out and one continuing to accept him. Do you see a change in the different media brands? Cause the economist have. At first, actually, I have changed the way I feel about this because at first, I was more sympathetic towards the people who were against Bannon being invited. Yeah, I was sympathetic to this idea of giving light in any way to Bannon is to... Actually, I I read this really interesting thing that I now forget where I read it. Oh, Oh, I remember. So I haven't listened to this yet, but there is a podcast episode produced by Crooked called Funny is How He, How We Got Here. Sorry. I haven't listened to this yet, but there's this podcast episode by Crooked called Funny is How We Got Here When Journalists Amplify Hate. And this was shared to me by Erwin Chen, my former professor. And in the summary, it, it boils it down to this idea of you don't know if light is going to disinfect or if light is going to simply illuminate. And what that means is, does the attention of the New Yorker disinfect Bannon, make him more palatable, more, this is why I said to you, palatable, this is why I said to you in our private message, like more valid, just, just the fact of being part of the New Yorker festival, or does the light of the New Yorker illuminate what's there, you know, shows the cockroaches, shows the holes. And that's a hard thing to know. Yeah, you don't really know. So at first I was on the side of those people that were thinking just the light of the New Yorker, regardless of what the conversation is, gives Bannon too much validity. It's almost as though they're on such opposite sides of the spectrum that even if they were to come close to the middle, there's still a massive gap. Mm -hmm. And it's like, do you even risk it? Or is that what you're striving for to have some sort of meeting in the middle is... Whether that's the actual outcome we're striving for, I don't know. But it's just the matter of moving the needle in some way, even if it's 
I think sticking with inviting Bannon moves the needle more than yeah. then deciding to disinvite him. Yeah, yeah. Disinviting is a bad look. Yeah. I think, you know, you said meeting in the middle and I hear that as average. I think I, I see what that. Is the, what is the reason for existence when you wind up ending up at average? I look at it more as if you guys are going to come to terms, there needs to be some sort of compromise. But I also don't think that this is really going to happen. It's like this ex- extremist approach to, to politics is kind of something people are worried about in terms of normalization, right? I think, okay, so the evolution of my thought now is that I think theoretically I, it is better to stand on the side of having controversial figures be part of the public discourse. It's less helpful to pretend these people aren't existing and disseminating their information. And it's more helpful to put them under the spotlight mm-hmm. and confront their ideas. You shared this with me as well. You shared someone on Twitter saying, my my stances are not so weak that I'm afraid I'll be persuaded yeah. by Bannon. Yeah. I think ultimately, to, to kind of bring it back in, anything community-driven outside the realm of politics generally will have a a lot more success, I think. So anytime you bring politics into the mix, that inherently features a certain demographic of people, of personalities involved in the discussion, it's going to be much more challenging. Kind of curious, it's like if we had... Do you think there would have been as big of a backlash if Complex Con or like whatever invited ASAP Bari or something? I, I don't think the Complex Con guest cares. Exactly. So I guess we at least applaud New Yorker readership for caring enough. I almost thought you were going to say, what if Complex Con invited Bannon? And I was like, would anyone even say something? So anyways, my, my takeaway is community driven companies, whether they're media, whether they're consumer brands are here to stay for sure. I think the positive nature of it drastically outweighs the downfalls. And I think that the challenge will just be the positive nature of community driven publications in terms of like sustainability, in terms of creating efficiencies, all that stuff. But the, you didn't let me finish. The okay, part, that I, wanted, going, the, the part that I wanted to make sure that is dialed in is like, at what ratio is community voice valued? So it's not like a 50-50 down the split. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's why I was like squinting my eyes at you. Yeah. Because you, I'm, I'm not saying that we have had this problem, but I think any company needs to be strong enough to not allow themselves to be bullied by negative reviews. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like, let's say just to ascribe like a... A guesstimate. It could be like 70, 30, 80, 20, or whatever. And maybe you only create certain opportunities for a community to really drive something. And that's not to discount the community so much as like for the preservation of a brand's identity. It's important. I mean, I, I obviously understand the value of listening to your community and incorporating them in certain ways and having considerations for their preferences and their opinions, even so far as to go to like some of the content that you produce. But I think when you decide to make a controversial decision, you need to be clear on why you're making it and then stick to it in the face of what might happen as a result. I I mean, Remnick has to have known when he invited Bannon that this was a potentially unpopular choice. Mm -hmm. 
So I, th- I felt that's like my the Economist takeaway. was much better equipped. The Economist hasn't even really gotten media flack. Maybe it's just because it's a smaller market. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Or they just got away with the New Yorker taking up all of people's attention and they slipped slipped under the rug. All I got to say is that I will be very interested to see the outcome of the Economist discussion. One of my also final takeaways is the New Yorker Festival has now has a lineup that has, you know, many intelligent, accomplished people, but not anyone that is unexpected. And perhaps that makes it a little bit boring. If, if you go and you plan on just hearing. As Malcolm Gladwell put it, it's like a dinner party with close friends can be great, but it's sometimes more fascinating to have just a little bit more of injection of a different point of view. Yeah. It's funny because my, my wife mentioned this the other day. She was like, I used to really disdain people that have strong opinions and points of view, but now I really appreciate it because it's just like something interesting. It sounds she's learning to appreciate you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> took her took her long enough. Yeah, that's it. That's it for me. Nike Just Do It campaign for their 30th anniversary was revealed and the main face of it is Colin Kaepernick. There are other people featured as well, including Serena Williams, LeBron James, Odell Beckham Jr., who is a NFL wide receiver on the Giants that suffered multiple injuries, Lacey Baker, an openly queer American professional skateboarder, and Shaquem Griffin, a NFL linebacker with one hand. Did yep. you know that? Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Wait, did you did you leave out Alfonso Davies? Oh, I did. Oh, I just got this list from somewhere else and then looked up the definition. Anyways, Alfonso Davies is from Edmonton. We played on the same football club, albeit how many years apart? I played there when I was under 13. So that was like, what, 21 years ago? Anyways. Anyway, I did want to mention the other people because overall, I think the campaign is powerful beyond just Kaepernick. Correct. But our main point today is to talk about Kaepernick in so particular. one thing is that Sharice has not watched the ad. Well, the thing is that I think of it as two parts. Yeah. The campaign initially rolled out with these black and white photos that are part of this like print digital ad campaign. Mm-hmm. And they're closely cropped portraits of the different people with um, quotations from them in mm-hmm. white text on top of the portraits. And the Colin Kaepernick one has a quotation that says, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. So this came out first. Mm-hmm, correct. These, so these print, these static images. And then yesterday, the video um, came out, the video dream crazy came yeah. out. Yeah. But to back up just one second, 
Um, I think we owe an explanation for who Kaepernick is. He is an American football quarterback, formerly of the San Francisco 49ers, and is currently a free agent who hasn't played in two years. So in 2016, he became this national figure when he kneeled on one knee during the national anthem at the start of NFL games as a form of protest against racial injustice in the States. Since then, he elected to become a free agent and Late last year, he actually filed a suit against the NFL, accusing them of colluding against hiring him. Just a little bit more context between him and Nike is that Nike has actually signed him since 2011. So it's not this new arrangement between them. It's more of a bolstering. It's an ongoing relationship, but Nike never dropped their contract, like kept extending the contract that they had with them. So should we watch the video now? Yeah. So the reason why I thought it was important for Sharice to not watch the video was I wanted to see if she felt the same way between the campaign and the video, if the messaging was consistent. I'm and hesitant whether we should watch the video now because I feel like this conversation now has two parts because I actually haven't gone into the reactions people had to the ad campaign initially before the video came out. I think we should watch it right now. If people say your dreams are crazy, if they laugh at what you think you can do, good. Stay that way. Because what non-believers fail to understand is that calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. Don't try to be the fastest runner in your school or the fastest in the world. Be the fastest ever. Don't picture yourself wearing OBJ's jersey. Picture OBJ wearing yours. Don't settle for homecoming queen or linebacker. Do both. Lose 120 pounds and become an Ironman after beating a brain tumor. Don't believe you have to be like anybody to be somebody. If you're born a refugee, Don't let it stop you from playing soccer for the national team at age 16. Don't become the best basketball player on the planet. Be bigger than basketball. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. What do you think of the video? I like it. Though I think his outfit at the end is a bit weird. He's right, wearing. This is not about styling right now. He's so it's Kaepernick narrating. Anyone who it hasn't watched well it should go watch it, since this is an audio podcast. Um, and he's wearing a brown trench coat with a black turtleneck. But this is that's totally not the point of the video. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And then, um, I think it was well written. So I think it's well written. And then while it's he narrates, wedding, it shows all the all these other people, like yeah. snippets of all these other athletes who essentially like what he's narrating, like he's describing that person, but without saying their name, like the yeah. girl from Compton is Serena Williams. Yeah. So maybe before we jump back into this, cause I had like kind of an alternative take on, on the video. What are your thoughts on the feedback that it has received? We can go back to the video, but what I wanted to also talk about is the reason we are talking about this is not just that this ad came out, but be, but 
after it came out, there was this sort of backlash. People online were burning their Nike shoes. And there was this one, I guess it's a meme now, one reaction from this guy who cut the swooshes off of his socks. That he had already purchased. That he was already purchased. And he was like holding the tops of his socks in the photo. And then experts kind of evaluated the media attention and gauged that Nike already got $43 million worth of media attention, whether good or bad, just in general from this campaign. And overall, that most responses, despite these outliers of like people burning their shoes that they've already purchased, most responses have been neutral to positive. And one point that I wanted to bring up is that Nike didn't really take that big of a risk. Yeah, I think that's the underlying thing that a lot of people savvy enough recognize. I'm not saying that that detracts from them supporting Kaepernick. I think it is still a win for them to support Kaepernick and what he stands for. But it is definitely a marketing strategy and a business play that they made a financial decision knowing that this is a way to make themselves and Kaepernick and all of these people money, that it was financially sound. Um, some statistics that I found were interesting. I think most people kind of know this anyway, but two thirds of Nike consumers are younger than 35 and ethnically diverse. And they are already leaders in global footwear sales of 21.1 billion mm-hmm. last year. So this sort of cements them again in leadership, right? And so another- and we, We've talked a lot about who are the people that are driving culture. Yeah. And you're, you're in many ways, you're creating a tight bond with them. Yeah. And this goes back to our first, first subject, which I alluded to as well, which is that Nike knows very clearly what its brand values are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It so happens that their brand values in this case are also very financially sound Mm -hmm. to follow, but they are making it clear, you know, this is what we stand up for. There is no wishy-washiness here and people can get behind that because it's a strong brand. Yeah. I think a lot of people are actually very much okay with the polarization of it because they recognize, hey, you know what? I've just, I've just immediately distanced myself from people that I don't want to be associated with. And I just so happen to be part of a part of the group that sees a lot of value in it. And you're the dominant one and you're the cultural drivers. So, it's a win for you. So what I mean is like, do you really care about the person who is going to length and cutting their socks? And I don't even know how to describe them in a politically correct way. Nike made a smart decision financially and in terms of their brand that they don't particularly care about this aspect of their consumers. Like this small percentage of our consumer base that is going to cut the swooshes off of their socks, they're not the important ones. And we know that Kaepernick and what he stands for as an inspirational figure is going to resonate strongly with our neutral to positive base and expand our neutral to positive base. Dating back quite a few months, we've always talked about the role of politics and brands and we're warming up to it. This is a further normalization that we should expect political agendas from brands? Well, I think what happened is Nike is always interested in athletes more so than Adidas or Puma, 
that this is at least my perception and my understanding of their history. It's more so, I think the current campaigns you've seen have been very reactive as in they have identified a way to Puma Naridas, a way to enter the market or take a part of the market. And that's through culture. Yeah. Nike, by picking people who are the greatest in their athletic fields, like LeBron and Serena, these people happen to also be politically minded. It That's just the way Nike didn't make that happen. Mm-hmm. LeBron happens to both be the greatest active basketball player slash possibly of all time and very interested in the political philanthropy, yeah, exactly, yeah. philanthropy, education, opening his own school. And then Serena, you know, she's both the greatest and interested in speaking out in support of Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. Nope. Nike didn't make her do that. So th- it, it just, things wound up being that way for Nike, yeah. right? Nike, of course, is going to want to support the best athletes yeah. and the best athletes have these moral goals. It would, how could you ignore that? Nike, in a way, Nike got lucky because they didn't really engineer the circumstances that occurred. Young people that are socially conscious and interested in these things also have the economic means to spend money supporting the stuff that they care about. Mm-hmm. So it's this like confluence of various factors that allowed Nike to have the effect it did. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the video? Yeah. The video to me was really well done, but I couldn't help but think, and I I don't think it's bad, but I I recall we were talking about the way the Western world sees individualism versus the more collectivist nature of the Eastern world, like Asia. Yeah. And one of the big issues we've seen and I don't maybe you you can call me out if it's a logical leap, but the way that sometimes we're empowering people to strive for this amazing, perfect life. The reality of the situation is that very few of any will ever attain it. Right. Because Kaepernick says, don't just be the fastest runner on your team or the the fastest runner in your country, but the fastest runner ever. Yeah. Right. Like that's what he's encouraging. Which is kind of what all of social media is right based on the curation of our lives. So this is something that popped into my mind more so than me calling out. I don't think it's, I don't really see Nike as being irresponsible for doing this ad because it's exactly what a good brand does. It creates aspiration, drives people. But in many ways, this is kind of a reinforcement of everything that's wrong, like mental health, all these things. That's a logical. I guess my pushback against that would be to say, the ad encourages striving to be the best in what you do, which is what I believe in. I mean, I I guess if you were to push back against what I just said, it would be that the ad encourages dreaming crazy in terms of dreaming about other things that maybe you're not set up to do, which I do think is setting you up for failure. But the positive way to look at it is to say, I'm an writer, editor, designer is to be the best writer, editor, designer I can be. Ever. Okay. Ever. (laughs) It's funny because this is another thing too, is the theoretical side versus the reality. The theoretical side is that people are going to see that. No, whether they're going to do it. I I think that if you're actually going to change the world, I don't think a Nike ad is really going to push you to do it (laughs) so much as to, to, (laughs) to consolidate it. It's like, Hey, 
Nike or whoever, the, the voices around me, whether it's social media, whether it's Nike ad is telling me that if I go and set a big dream and I sacrifice, I'll be able to do it. But the reality of the situation is that I think most people's vantage point of what sacrifice is versus their actual drive versus their actual talent versus timing, it's not going to happen. Yeah. But it doesn't stop you from dreaming. It's just that I think the next step is like, can you be mentally tough to understand that if you don't reach this, what does that mean? And I think that is the bigger issue is that striving for perfection, striving to be the best. These are all things that I think about. I'm like, I want to be the best, but I know that there are certain things that are limiting me from being the best. So how do you mentally deal with that when everyone else is telling you, you can do it? So that to me is like the underlying takeaway. And I, like I said, it's not irresponsible on Nike to put out this ad, but it just, it was like a instantly that's like, oh, based on the, the current discussion and dialogue of how the West individualism pushes us to be a president, an astronaut. Right. right. And it's also, I, I understand. I understand as well. And the other thing is that, again, I, I also do not think that is irresponsible to make this ad. And the ad is very inspirational. It's great. It's a great it ad. It is. It's a great ad. But I do see it is pushing this culture as well of you can overcome all circumstances. You can overcome being born with a disability, like having one hand, yes. or you can overcome being born in Compton in a, un, like a lower privilege. In a, in a non-traditional in, tennis right, environment. In a, in a tr- yes, exactly. Um, and that's not like we talked about this in the luck conversation. That's not necessarily true. And it can help you as an individual if you acknowledge your circumstances, not to say that you acknowledge your circumstances and then allow yourself to be defeated by them, but acknowledging that some people had better circumstances. And yes, some people overcame those, but the reality is that it's much tougher to do that. I think also I was listening to an episode of This American Life and it suggests that people who attribute their success to luck are happier than people who believe that they earned things. And I think that's true about myself as well. Not to put myself down, but to recognize a lot of what I have is circumstantial makes me a happier person. When you attribute whatever you have, and this is back to that exact same luck conversation, when you attribute whatever you have in life partially to luck, to circumstances, then you're not so hard on yourself or you don't put yourself at the center of being the driver. But this Nike ad really pushes that you yourself are the driver. So maybe irresponsible. I don't know. Now I feel, I feel like it's a weird thought that popped in my head, to be honest. I feel like I've been, cause there's a lot of circumstance. Like I, I can only use an example of that Alfonso Davies guy, the guy who they talk about who was born a refugee. And then, so it's like, you know, for him, it was, Oh, you, maybe you grew up in a part and there was an actual like free football program that you were able to play in, which I think is what happened. Like someone had to set that up. Right. There's a lot of circumstantial stuff, not to obviously diminish. Is it possible that truly aspirational, innovative people will necessarily be less happy? Yeah, of course. Because I'm thinking more about this Nike tagline 
on this video where it says, don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. Hashtag just do it. And the premise of that is you need to be discontent with where you are. You should be not satisfied with however you are feeling right now. And you need to push yourself for more. And yeah, I agree that that could lead to great things. But I also think that condition of being human and just perpetually discontent and pushing for more will make you less happy. Yeah. No, of course, because you're always wanting more. But sometimes it's the life you choose. To that point about luck and all that stuff, I was just curious, like how many people that have been successful at one point in, in their career have been able to replicate the success again in a bigger, in better fashion. Maybe it's less about sports because there's obviously an age timeline, but I'm just curious about entrepreneurship or not. What was the thing we were actually trying to analyze and debate? The main thing I came into this conversation planning to talk about that wasn't related to the Dream Crazy video at all. We talk about this a lot about how brands can or cannot or should or should not make moral stands. And neither of us are naive enough to believe that brands have to. Right. Because I think they do though. They, now they do. They do, but we are they under, have to. yeah, they don't have to. Like we don't expect them to have to make these societal statements because they're in it for money. Right. It's just that now the very interesting thing is I see more and more how commercial and societal values are interlinked. And in, in this case, you know, Nike's, uh, this is a huge win for them. That's what I, that's all, what I came to here to talk about. I mean, all of a sudden wearing a Nike swoosh as a logo on a piece of clothing means that much more now. I think that's very interesting. And, and it is correcting in a way because we talked about them in negative lights several I mean, times. I mean, does this inherently... It doesn't wash the slate clean per se, but... I would say it's very much in their favor. The balaclava thing was just a week ago. This is a good place, though actually 30 minutes ago was probably a better place to cut things off. But we're ending now. If you're interested in hearing more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, visit us at makein.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can always DM us on Instagram at M-A-E-K-A-N. And if you would really like to get in touch with one of us personally, you can email us at Sharice at Macon or Eugene at Macon.com. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.